0: Church, go ahead and get your Bibles open to Galatians, the fifth chapter, uh, and you can also follow along on the Version Bible app. Uh, go there, and then do something, and you can find us, <laughs> I think it's more than events, and then find New Vintage SD, and you can follow along with us uh, uh, this morning as we go through. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit, and let me just sum up this text for you uh, in a sentence, actually just a few words even. You need God. I need God. Anybody who's not here, they need God too. The city we're living in needs God. More than we can possibly imagine. Okay, we need the Lord. More than you know. Now God has a way of letting us know that from time to time, or life teaches it to us. Because eventually, something will call upon us that takes more power than we have. It takes more patience than we have. It takes more energy than we have. It takes more love than we have, just in our good old human flesh. And we all of a sudden realize that our willpower is a lousy substitute for the power of God's Spirit. And so Paul, after going through oh, five and a half chapters of talking to us about the futility of trying to live your life by the law. Gets around to saying, look, if you really don't want to gratify the desires of the flesh, and if you want to live a life that is full of power, if you want the courage that only God can provide, then only God can provide it. The law can't provide it. Your willpower cannot provide it. And so in Galatians chapter 5, He says, and to sum it all up, you need God more than you know. You need Him. We're here in the Advent season, and we celebrate the arrival of Jesus Christ, our Savior. As the world lay in its sin and error pining, Jesus is sent into the world to bring good news and to come and to redeem a fallen creation and to engage in the process of God restoring all things. And so Jesus now, we may remember was conceived by of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist, his predecessor, his cousin, it said of John that he was full of the Holy Spirit from before he was born. Now those two, quite a sight to behold, those two guys, repeatedly throughout their ministry, they're spoken of as full of the Holy Spirit. And what you see is, as they're full of the Holy Spirit, often what they're doing is they're saying something that most people would not have the guts to say. They're doing something that is uncommon, and it's boldness. And so if you're looking for what the Holy Spirit does, boldness is toward the top of the list in the New Testament. Throughout their ministries, they're told to be full of the Holy Spirit. And so it's appropriate that here, as we enter into the Christmas season, that we speak of the Holy Spirit's presence in our own lives. Now, if you're not familiar with the Holy Spirit, no idea what I'm talking about. The Holy Spirit is God. Uh, God is triune, three persons, equal. The Holy Spirit is one of those. You have Father, Son, Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is God. When you hear me say the word the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm saying the power of God. Many associate the Holy Spirit when they read the Bible or what they've heard. Of the Bible, primarily with what you might call the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit's ministry, primarily in the New Testament, is really that of empowerment to live out the gospel in ways that one could not do without Him. It's the indwelling power and presence of God, so wonderful, so powerful. Then in John 16, 7, Jesus says something most curious. He says, it's good that I should go, for until I go, the advocate, that's how he's referring to the Holy Spirit in that passage, the advocate can't come to you. Saying in essence that the only thing better than having Christ among you is Christ within you. The Holy Spirit is seen by some as kind of his crazy uncle that you invite to the uh, proverbial Christmas party. Because you know he's part of the family, and you know he ought to be there, but you're not really sure what he's going to do. And so people kind of, they they knowingly acquiesce to the reality of the Holy Spirit and his existence, but they always uh, take hold of the Holy Spirit very loosely, not understanding that the Holy Spirit is something to be surrendered to, someone to be surrendered to. And that it's there through the process of surrendering ourselves to the direction, the guidance, the power of the Holy Spirit that we then become able to live out the gospel the way that God calls us to do. In Galatians 5.16, we're going to read 5.16-18. Uh, through 18. First, and then we're gonna chart the course through that. Paul finally gets around to explaining how we're supposed to live in freedom. If we're not supposed to live by the law, then what is it? Just kinda of laissez faire everybody does what they see is good and right in their own eyes. Is that what we're supposed to do, or is there something else? And he says, No, 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 no. No, 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 no. You live your life under the influence of God's Holy Spirit. Galatians five, sixteen to eighteen says this. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses." Alright, so let's just start here and then we'll get to the, here's what the flesh looks like, here's what the Spirit is like. This point should not be missed. We have two natures, the sinful nature and then the Holy Spirit working within us when you're a Christian. So you've probably had that particular quandary where you know what you ought to do, but you really don't want to do it. You don't want to eat that, but you really do. You want to say this, but you know you shouldn't. You want to do that, but you know, I really shouldn't do that. And sometimes, depending on the ball field you're playing on, those decisions be life and death. Heaven and hell. I mean, big time decisions, right? Those decisions and that tug of war that goes on internally, Paul acknowledges readily. And he says, we have a sinful nature. Okay, We're created in the image of God. We are uh, are created in the image of God, and so therefore man is created good. But we do have a sinful nature, and that goes to war with what the Holy Spirit wants to do inside of us. So, I know I ought to give, but I also want to buy that for myself. I really want to tell you what I think of you, but I know I shouldn't say that. Uh, I know that I should let you have that, but instead... I really want that, so I'm going to have that. It can go as basic as who's going to take the last scoop of mac and cheese at the Christmas dinner, all the way to am I going to have the affair? Am I going to go uh, spend that and in so doing put myself in real financial peril? Am I going to walk out on my family? Am I going to walk out on my church? Am I going to walk out? I mean, it just gets the circumstances behind this can get huge. And what Paul says to us here walk by the Spirit. And you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. He's saying that in the cosmic arm wrestling match of power, the Holy Spirit is stronger than your flesh. That the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And that when you believe that, and when you're walking by the power of the Spirit, then you're not under the law. That answers the question of, well, how do I live righteously then if I'm not following the law? Because you're living by the Spirit. The very power and presence of God is directing your steps. So therefore, law is a kind of a crummy substitute for life in the Spirit. A good offense is the best defense, might be another way to put it very simply. Walking by the Spirit keeps us from gratifying the desires of the flesh. Now we need to understand we're talking about the surrender to the Holy Spirit, not not willpower. Our willpower is very, very weak. There's a psychologist named Roy Baumeister. And good old Roy decided to do an experiment where uh, he tried to test the limits of human willpower. So he had two groups. He had one uh, that was allowed to eat radishes, but he filled the room with warm, hot, gooey chocolate chip cookies. All right. So this group could only eat radishes, and they could not eat any cookies. The other group was allowed to eat cookies, as just to their little hearts' content. So you can imagine the smell, right? Like just picture right now this room filled with the aroma. Probably can do it on demand, can't you? Gooey, warm, hot chocolate chip cookies. And so he took the group that had been resisting eating the cookies and then the group that had been allowed to plow through as many cookies as they wanted to and he put before them an unsolvable math problem. Now it's literally an unsolvable math problem. And what he did was he tried to see Who's going to quit first? And what he found was the people who had already used up their willpower, resisting eating the cookies, quit almost immediately. They had nothing left. Their willpower was gone. So they didn't even mess with it. The group that had been just in, you know, scarfing down the cookies at will went longer. And his point in doing it was that you actually have, I have a finite amount of willpower, it has very real limits. If you don't believe me, Try this one on, parents. Sweetheart, I want you to clean up your room. Whatever, Mom. Sweetheart. Mommy would love it if you'd pick up your room. I'll do it later. Mm, How about now? Yeah, I'll get to it later, Mom. I'm I'm playing a game right now. And you get where I'm going, right? This thing continues to escalate, it escalates, it escalates, escalates, until Mount Mamuvius just kind of blows up, right? (laughs) And you're all over the kid, right? Because the willpower's gone. So you now no longer have any willpower left to be able to control yourself. It builds, it builds, it builds, it builds, and you explode. It's not unusual that you see come up in the virtue and vice list fits of rage or anger being listed among those things that are a symptom of walking by the flesh rather than the spirit. And it's because when you're in those situations, instead of being able to walk by the, by the Spirit, uh, your willpower just, just demonstrates before your eyes it, the futility of relying on it. And that's why it's ironically surrender that is the key to spiritual growth, not willpower. Now this isn't to say that we never do anything or that the will isn't important at all. It's simply to acknowledge that like surfing or water skiing, the power is in something completely beyond us. That there's something, yeah, you may have to paddle to catch the wave, but eventually the wave grabs you and carries you forward. That's kind of the picture. You're walking by the Spirit, and thus you don't gratify the desires of the flesh. It's like a, a ginormous wave that you're riding, and here comes your little you know, uh, flesh right here, and the wave just absolutely overcomes it. Walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. There is a very real battle between flesh and spirit. And those who are not led by the Spirit, he goes on to say, they are under the law. The reciprocal of this is true. A person who's not walking by the Spirit is under the law. But if you were under the Spirit, then you're not under the law. So a person who doesn't acknowledge it is going to be judged by the metrics of the law of God. A person who walks by the Spirit, there is nothing against them. There is no law against them. Okay. Next up, Paul's going to give us two lists. This is what walking by the flesh looks like. This is what lo- walking by the Spirit looks like. Okay? These are called virtue and vice lists. They were pretty common in, in ancient literature. Paul does this a lot. Uh, he does it in 2 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 8, Ephesians 4, uh, 1 Timothy 6, 2, uh, 2 Timothy 3. These lists are used to kind of characterize something. So it's not like a Ten Commandments of these are the only fruits of the Spirit or these are the only works of the flesh. It's, he's giving us characteristics. This is what uh, it looks like if a person is walking by the flesh or walking by the Spirit. So we're going to go ahead and read Galatians 5:19 to 25. Tell me if, you, if you've seen any of these in your own lives or in the lives of those around you. Start with yourself. That's always the rule of interpreting the Bible before you apply it to uh, the person that you want to use the Scriptures against. Um, This is designed to interrogate us first, to shine the light of God's Word inside of us first. So here we go. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures... Idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anybody living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But... The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to His cross and crucified them there. Ooh, that's a powerful image. You take all your fleshly passions and you nail them to his cross and have crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. Now, in both of these lists, one of the things you're going to notice is it's kind of focused on the way that we treat other people for the most part. Um, There are some things, lusts and such, but there's a lot of stuff about envy and fits of rage and quarrelsomeness and and things like that. And that's because right before this, Paul's talked about uh, how important it is that the law is summed up in a word, love your neighbor as yourself. So we're meant to hear these as a description of life in the spirit versus life in the flesh. So let me ask you, when somebody asks you how your spiritual life is doing, where do you go? Like, how do you measure that? Uh, we've talked a little bit about this already in this series. Do you go automatically to here's how often I've prayed recently? Uh, here's how often I've read my Bible recently? Uh, Paul would give us some measure like this. Like that list of the fruit of the Spirit. When somebody asks you how your spiritual life is doing, perhaps, we should think first of to what extent our lives are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. We should think about to what extent the Spirit's fruit is being born in our lives before jumping to the practices that help cultivate the fruit. Look for the source of the fruit and look for the fruit itself. So when somebody asks me how my walk with Christ is going, it's, it's very tempting for me to automatically look at the, the spiritual practices uh, prayer and am i doing any quiet times am i reading the bible enough am i doing these kinds of things or am i serving am i giving am i doing these sorts of things okay and it's not that by any means that those are unimportant they're all good questions that somebody should ask but they're not the first ones that should be asked the best questions to answer the question how is your spiritual life going are questions like this am i becoming a more patient person Is God empowering me to be a more self controlled person? Am I living a joyful life regardless of my circumstances? After all, it's God's Spirit that gives joy, not circumstances, right? It's a fruit of the Spirit. Now, for churches, it works the same way. You want to gauge the spiritual health of a church, you don't just look at how many ministries they're involved in, you don't just look at are they a people of the book. It's not that uh, not, that stuff's not important. It's that you need to look for things like, is there evidence of joy? I've seen a lot of big churches that are completely joy-free. The frozen chosen, as they call them, uh, in some <laughs> tribes. That, that's a very real dynamic. I mean, zero patience. And so I wonder if when, you, when we look at things, if we're using the right measuring stick you know it's like somebody going how tall are you and you say three liters (laughs) you know (laughs) you're using the wrong metric to measure yourself you know uh when what god wants to know is how surrendered are you to me not how much stuff are you doing for me are you surrendered to me do i have you do i have your heart Heart, mind, soul, strength. How surrendered are you to me? That's the big question for each person. And then for the church, the question becomes, Okay, how surrendered is the church to the reign of God's Spirit within it? And the way you answer that is to take a look at the list. It's just a symptom list. It's not designed to become a new codified law that we do, but it's, it's something that Scripture gives us as a guide, love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I mean, does that characterize us? Not just use as a person, that's important, we should start there. But then, beyond that, the spiritual disciplines like prayer, worship, Bible study, giving, all those things are great, and they help us cultivate life with God, but they are not themselves life with God. Life with God, walking by the Spirit, if you will, led by the Spirit, leads us to prayer, Bible study. Because I'm surrendered to the Spirit of God, I actually develop an appetite for Scripture, an appetite for prayer. I want to be with my Heavenly Father. I want to spend time with God. And as I do, guess what? I become more joyful and more patient and more peaceful and all of these things. But I develop an appetite for the things of God. And if we don't, then we end up kind of slowly, if it just comes down to obeying and getting the little practices in, um, we can mistake the fruit for the actual means by which we obtain the fruit. John Orberg tells this story. He says, a friend of mine recently graduated from one of the service academies where they're very serious about the clean your room rule. Sometimes my friend got ink marks on the wall that couldn't come out. And so, he would just chip the plaster off. <laughs> Pretty smart, actually. He says, the inspectors would give demerits for ink marks, but they figured missing chunks of plaster was some sort of construction problem. <laughs> so, the rules ended up encouraging the slow demolition of the room. <laughs> you see where he's going with that? Like, you can just keep chipping the plaster off. Because, you, you know, the, the, the way that we measure things and the way we inspect things is, is off. And I don't want to be like those people in Matthew 25 who get to the judgment seat of God and realize that I measure myself by all the wrong criteria. How heavy are you? Six feet, three inches. That's not what he's looking for. If you get to the end, you read your Bible all day long and you did all that, do you know there are people, I know them, you probably do too, there are a lot of people read the Bible a lot, pray a lot, do all these sorts of things, and they're just mean. They're mean people. So do they please God by doing the task of reading the Bible rather than letting the Bible penetrate their very soul and spirit? Rather than acknowledging the God to whom the Scriptures point, the Holy Spirit the Scripture points to? You know, I hope we're getting what Paul's saying. He says, listen, this is what God has in mind for you. And, and if we can get this, then we will access the power of the Holy Spirit that is just, I mean, it takes us to new levels. I mean, in our walk with Christ. If you're looking to cultivate life in the Spirit, the spiritual practices of prayer and worship and Bible study are vital. I don't want to be misunderstood here. However, you can't mistake the practices meant to cultivate life with God for the end, which is walking by His Spirit. You can't make a new law out of them. There is an enormous difference between following rules and following Jesus, because I can follow rules without following Jesus. I really can. Now, after focusing on life in the Spirit, uh, these, are, these are kind of... Uh, other biblical principles that are not directly tied to Galatians 5, but they're definitely in the Scriptures. He says it elsewhere. This is particularly in uh, 2 Corinthians. Okay, After focusing on life in the Spirit, avoid comparison to others. People's spiritual pathways are different. And while we have the same Spirit and Savior, God has created people differently. Our life circumstances are different, and our personalities are different. Comparing ourselves with others can do real harm to us. Real harm. So, for instance if uh when when i was in uh when i was in in uh, graduate school it was pretty easy for me i was single uh i had no no wife no kids um and and could get by on very little sleep at the time so it was pretty easy for me to get up and spend an hour a day in the word of god no problem right well and i could look at others who had like you know four kids they worked full time they had all this and go boy well you know i spend an hour in the In the Word every day. They don't. You know, without even noticing that sometimes the work that they're doing, loving and caring for their children, is also an act of service unto the Lord. And in the act of demonstrating patience and love and care for their children, God is shaping their spirit. And it's a way in which they are surrendering themselves to the Spirit of God and walking by the Spirit. It's easy for me to compare apples to pears and then claim apples are better and shinier. I remember once uh, when Wednesday night church was the thing. Some of you may have grown up in traditions where Wednesday night church was kind of essential. And you judged people by uh, who went to Wednesday night church, the midweek service, and who didn't. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, that was great. And, it, and, and it, was, it was always amazing to me how the people that were there all the time, how close they lived to the church building compared to the people who weren't there. And, and how easy it was when, when you live around the corner... And, and you're retired, and you're not working the workforce anymore, and you could put the service at six o'clock on a Wednesday, and then judge the guy that lived thirty miles away and worked until six. Yeah. See what I mean? Comparison. And so as long as I'm comparing myself to you, or I can go like this, it can get can, can get at the personal level. You take it out of the church world. You start comparing your spouses to other people's spouses. Ooh, boyfriends to girlfriends. Church to church. Pastor to pastor. Uh Uh-oh. I mean, you can just go, 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 go. And as the Scriptures say, when they compare themselves with themselves, they're not wise. That's also Paul. Comparison will kill you, man. It will sap the joy. It's like you just created, like one of those cartoons you remember where Bugs Bunny or whoever would draw the drain on the canvas? Like a, He'd draw a toilet handle and a drain and then pull the handle and, and whoever was standing over the drain would just get flushed. It was totally imaginary. It's like that's what you do with your life. It's like, hey, everybody's having a good time, and then all of a sudden I'm going to compare somebody. So here's the handle, here's the drain, pa and Down goes the joy. So do what it, you have to do to avoid those comparisons, sisters and brothers. It will absolutely kill you. Our life and our makeup is different than everybody else's too. Um, You may remember the story of good old King David and Saul. And remember when he goes to fight Goliath and they say, hey, you need some armor. So here's Saul's. And they give him Saul's. The guy can barely stand up in Saul's armor. It wasn't made for him. What he wanted was a slingshot. I'm really good with a slingshot. Just give me a few rocks and a slingshot. I'm going to go, oh, no, no, no. You can't go fight Goliath and that. You need this. And so they try to put Saul's armor on. He, it didn't fit. I think a lot of people spend their lives trying to get into Saul's armor. Uh, and they never really understand that there are unique ways that God can use you. Not everybody's Peter. Okay. Not everybody's the Apostle Paul. Sometimes they're Andrew. They're the quiet guy who happens to Bring one guy to Christ, and that guy it turns out to be Peter, right? God uses all sorts of people. Some people are mighty, uh, you know, with the, with the tongue. I mean, they can go preach with the best of them. Some people are great at serving the Lord. Some people have been given great minds to serve the Lord with. Some people get the whole stinking package, and we hate those people, don't we? But God, that's what God sought to, to give people. He says, okay, you're going to be smart, good-looking, a great servant, have a great heart, and do all of that. And then, you know, you get you know, like this one town or whatever, but God saw fit to give it all to him. Praise God for that. But don't compare yourself to that person. Okay? It will sap your growth. Uh, St. Benedict led a community of faith and wrote one of the most famous guidebooks for spiritual growth ever produced called the Rule of Benedict. But he built some flexibility into it. In the, in the Rule of Benedict, he writes uh, how the abbot must treat, treat each soul differently. And he says, one he must coax, another scold, another persuade, according to each one's character and understanding. Thus, he must adjust and adapt himself to all. Now, there's another way to gauge your spiritual growth. Um, plug something in is the way I could word it. Now, I'm a, this is the parable of the hairdryer. I, I'm, I live in a house with four women. Okay. Uh, Yeah, it's a challenge. It's beautiful, but it's a challenge at times, especially when it comes time to get ready. I got a wife, three daughters, two of which are teenagers right now, which means even though we actually have three bathrooms in the house, we need eight. Okay. (laughs) Uh, It is. I am not. I mean, it is. It is normal for me to need to get into a bathroom, and all of them are are booked solid for the for the next hour. Okay. Well, another thing that's in very short supply, no matter how many we seem to own are hair dryers. So we get into this occasionally, and I have mine. Mine is like an olive green. Okay, it's a nice manly color. Occasionally, it goes missing. Now, I'm one of these guys, I plug my thing in and I leave it there. I don't even bother to put it in the drawer. It just stays plugged into the wall right there. I want to know where everything is so I can go in, boom, 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 I'm out. Okay, when it's gone... The first thing that is said is, well, you must have put it somewhere. No. Yeah, I I put it there. It stays there, okay? (laughs) I did not put it anywhere. Who took it is the right question. Somebody moved it. The next stage is, uh, here, use this one. And then I'm handed, like, a pink hair dryer. I ain't using that. I'm not using it. Occasionally, as a guy, you just got to draw the line somewhere and say, I'm not blowing my hair with a pink hair dryer. It's the same air. It's not. A pink hair dryer, I'm convinced, blows different air than an olive green. <laughs> I need my olive green hair dryer. All right? Well, here's what will happen is occasionally, you get the whole family together, everybody starts blowing their hair at the same time. What happens? Blow a circuit. Boom. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So you got to know where the fuse box is if you got. Three daughters and a wife. And everybody's getting ready at the same time. Right? Because the power required, okay, is greater than the source of the power. (laughs) See what I'm saying? Now, hopefully you can see where I'm about to go with this. If you want to know where your life is at and where your spiritual life is, plug something in. It's not how you feel. That judges it. Plug in something that requires real power. Do something that actually requires something of you. That would make you have to stretch. And see what happens. Meltdown? Total short circuit? I'm about to get real personal here for a second. got to be real and acknowledge the fact that sometimes when people make their decision about where they're going to go to church... They don't want to pick first a church where a lot is going to be required of them. Who wants that? Hey, sign up for this. This is going to require a lot. When's the last time you signed up for anything like that? Everybody's trying to get rid of responsibilities. Everything's about being simple, essentialist. Making sure that you have your morning routine, your meditation in the morning Your morning five. Make it simple. And look, simple's got its place. Don't get me wrong. But it's really hard to know if you're walking by the Spirit if the life you're living doesn't require the Spirit because it doesn't require any power. See, churches are the same way. I think a lot of reasons that churches don't, don't even, I, I don't want to like blow our own, own horn here or something like that, but I, I want to commend some of, of you and the leadership of the church for being willing to plug in something the size of that project, because that requires a heck of a lot of power, <laughs> okay? That's like, you know, that's like plugging in a small city at the same time, okay? it takes real power. And so, if you don't, if you look at things and you go, I don't know if we've got the power to pull that off, spiritually speaking, then you just don't do it. But if you feel like God's called you to do it, part of what it means to walk by the Spirit is to simply say, We believe God has called us to do it. Thus, we believe when we plug this sucker into the wall that God's going to provide more than enough power to get it done. You see what I'm saying? Same with your individual personal life. Don't you just set, we got so many, you know, people in this church that are awesome. I mean, disciplined, man, now you guys amaze me. Fitness, work, your, your brains, your, your, I mean, just discipline. Don't forget as you're setting your goals, because we're coming up to new year's time. Do something crazy spiritually. Challenge yourself to do something crazy spiritually. I'm going to, I'm going to pick up my own daughter for just a second. Now, this is where both of them are filled with anxiety. that are in the room, and I'm going to point out this one right here. Um, now, let me, let, me, let me say something. Okay, my daughter, very quietly on her Instagram stories, um, has been putting up a worship song every day, every day, every day. It is now December the something, okay? <laughs> every stinking day, okay? That's nuts. I mean... Like I barely remember to eat every day. Actually, I eat a lot. I barely remember to do a lot of things on an average day. But the discipline that it takes to do that, be wanting to be public about your faith that's right. as a teenager. Okay, that's something like you're setting a goal for yourself. I'm gonna read the Bible cover to cover this year. I'm gonna I'm gonna do something. I'm going to make sure that I'm I i do not care what's going on in my life, I don't care how tired I am, I don't care how whiny my kids are. I'm going to be present at church every Sunday if it, you know, until the Lord's return. Okay? <laughs> I'm going to do it. Plug something in. Give crazy money. Don't give nickels that don't require anything of you. Okay? It'd be a lot, you know, it's a lot easier as a pastor, frankly, to just kind of plug in small stuff. Because blowing a fuse is, feels crummy, you know, and happens in public or something like that. <laughs> you know, oh, sorry, I thought, I thought, uh, I thought I could handle that. I thought we could handle that. I thought we right. So the courage, the temptation is to simply say, we're not going to try anything. Mm-hmm. We're not going for that because what if we fail? That's right. Well, in another one of his letters, Paul says this. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. Power, love, self-discipline. Power, love, self-discipline. And this text from Paul, if I'm hearing him right, is saying, go, surrender yourself to the Holy Spirit of God and see where he takes you. I mean, do something crazy for God. I don't mean reckless, right? Although I think sometimes you got to start there. Sometimes you just got to get out of the starting blocks. And so you don't even wait for the gun to go off. You just go. And then sometimes you're like the people in Acts, Acts 1, where God tells the church, he says, Hey, wait. When the Holy Spirit shows up, then go. And you're going to be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth... And that, they had no idea what they were getting themselves into. And he said, you're going to need the power that only the Spirit can provide. So you need to wait for him. Because what you're about to do is going to require supernatural power. So don't go without the power. Or you're just going to go, you're going to blow a fuse. Trade of the Spirit. Boldness. Here are a few greatest hits. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, entered the temple, and he saw the money changers there, and he turned the tables over. John the Baptist, full of the Holy Spirit, got up and had a few things to say to the Pharisees. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, it said, gets up and decides he has something to say as well. You stiff-necked, uncircumcised, and heart and ears, and the next thing you know, he's stoned to death. That's sometimes where the Holy Spirit takes you. And then there are other times where it's just the simple fruit of the spirit being born in the quiet witness of parents who are willing to, sac- to to to, to um, offer their children as a living sacrifice to God, Amen. and to do that consistently and faithfully. And then sometimes it's the it's Peter at Pentecost, full of the Holy Spirit, getting up, and preaching that amazing sermon that he did. Sometimes. It's Paul and Silas sitting in a jail full of the Holy Spirit singing hymns even as they're rotting away in prison. Fruit grows the same way fruit grows out here on earth. Needs light, needs minerals, needs water. But if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit, it says Galatians five twenty five. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 2 Corinthians three seventeen. And we believe, sisters and brothers, we've said through our presence here, through our taking of communion and what we're about to do when we go down and sign that stage. If you put a person's name on that stage, please pray for them. Don't just do it and walk away. You're saying by signing their name that I believe God can do something here. You're plugging something in. All right. Our church going to plug something in. You're going to see two things down there. You're going to see we're going to sign the front of the stage, and then there're going to be a couple of steel beams in the back. Those are going to go up and over what's called the proscenium. I was told I needed to explain what that is. That's an arch basically, that goes over the stage. So whenever you're in that room going forward, you will see the front of the stage, and you'll know what's there, and then up and over the stage, you'll know what's there scripture, a blessing, the name of a friend that, and and I know because I was there when when we did it the first time at Juniper, I, I think I've counted at least four of you that were written on that stage that day and ended up coming to the Lord because you had a friend that cared enough about you to pray for you, to ask that God come into your life and wreck shop in all the right ways. So here's what I would like to do, sisters and brothers, in the spirit of asking the Holy Spirit to break loose among us, uh, we're going to close in prayer, um, and I'm going to ask us to stand in a second. Um, If there are some of you who the Spirit moves to uh, stick around and help tear down a little bit so that the people who normally do tear down can actually go do that uh, a little bit faster, that would be great. If you don't know where in the world we're talking about, uh, it's this simple. Simple to me because I live here, but uh, Valley Parkway runs right here behind me. The next street over is Grand, so you go to that one, and then you go that way, and you'll see it. It's the big blast zone looking thing with the uh, and you'll see a bunch of weird people walking around there very shortly. Um, But I hope, sisters and brothers, what you're going to uh, see today, uh, this this is the last moment right before they pour all the concrete everywhere. So it's the stage, it's the floor inside the Ritz, and it's the foundation slab for the 301, the the corner, okay, Uh, and by the time that you come back from Christmas or whatever, you're going to start seeing outdoor steel going up on the outside. You'll see some of the steels already going up inside the the Ritz, Um, but just look at it as, again, it's, it's a work in progress. It's a metaphor in some ways for us. God's working on us, and he's building us into something great. I have no doubt about it.